0: The Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. (laughs) He entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also was a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. We've been in a series since the week after Easter Sunday about conflict and peacemaking, and we've talked about all kinds of things related to this topic if you've been with us, and we're going to stay in this series uh, through Pentecost, which is next Sunday. And a few weeks ago, I shared a few stories about reconciliation that were recounted for the 20th anniversary of the genocide in Rwanda, which happened a number of years ago. There were stories of households that were brought together on either side of the genocide. The Hutu, uh, the perpetrating party, the offending party, and the Tutsi tribe that were the victims. And they were stories of households that were brought together through a national reconciliation initiative led by a group called AMI. I want to share a few more stories today. If you were with us, they're similar but different. And you'll see what I mean. Here's the story of Jean-Pierre and Vivi. And Jean-Pierre was a Hutu. And uh, Vivian is a Tutsi. Jean-Pierre says, "My my conscience was not quiet about what I had done. And when I would see her, I was very ashamed. After being trained about unity and reconciliation, I went to her house and asked forgiveness. Then I shook her hand. And so far, we are on good terms. This is Vivian describing the last 20 years and what had happened more recently with Jean-Pierre. She's a Tutsi. Vivian says of Jean-Pierre, he killed my father and three brothers. He did these killings with other people, but he is the only one who came to me and asked for pardon. He and a group of other offenders who had been in prison helped me build a house with a covered roof. I was afraid of him. Now I have granted him pardon. Things have become normal. And in my mind, I feel clear." And just one more story. This is Dominique. He is a Hutu and day. She was a Tutsi. Dominique says, "'The day I thought of asking for pardon, I felt unburdened and relieved. I had lost my humanity because of the crime I committed. But now I am like any human being. This is what Conceal Day says in response. After I was chased from my village in Dominique, and others looted it, I became homeless and insane. Later, when he asked my pardon, I said, I have nothing to feed my children. Are you going to help me raise my children? Are you going to build a house for them? The next week, Dominique came with some survivors and former prisoners who perpetrated genocide. There were more than 50 of them, and they built my family a house. Ever since then, I've started to feel better. I was like a dry stick. Now I feel peaceful in my heart, and I share this peace with my neighbors. These are stories that don't only talk about forgiveness. They talk about repentance. One thing we mentioned last week is that forgiveness can happen without the repentance of the person who has wronged you. It's not ideal, but from the heart it is possible. What is not possible is reconciliation. A return to a baseline shared, healthy relationship, unless two or more parties are involved. So as you think about these stories, are these stories about forgiveness or about restitution? They're both. I've heard it said a number of times, well, I'm forgiven. Great. That means there's nothing else required of me, right? I mean, if if you try to earn forgiveness, you're not You're not really forgiving if you try to earn it, right? We're not talking about earning. We're talking about repentance. And if someone tells you that forgiveness means that the person who offended you or wronged you or sinned against you or committed crimes against you has nothing more to say or do about their act And that is a wrong understanding of what happens in forgiveness, of what God intends to happen after forgiveness. And this is a sermon, not a conversation that could last hours. And that might be what we need. We're going to follow up next week about what now. How do we talk about some of these deep entrenched hurts that maybe we've just begun to uncover as some of you try to apply the wrongs that you feel done against you and the wrongs you've committed. But today, we're going to talk about the relationship between forgiveness and repair. It's a very important relationship, and we don't want to stop the conversation about forgiveness with just the release, as important as that is. As just, we don't want to just talk about the promise to never hold against you or punish you or vindictively come after you again and again with your hands or your heart. Forgiveness does mean a letting go, but that's not the end of the conversation, biblically speaking. So, last week, if you were with us, um, we we looked at a parable, the parable of the unforgiving servant from Matthew 18. And it's a parable, a fictional story Jesus uses to teach something about a man who was forgiven an unimaginably large sum, but then he struggled to forgive someone who owed him a much smaller sum. So a man received grace and then turned to face someone who owed him less than he had been forgiven. This week, if you want to think about it this week in the story of Zacchaeus, which was just read, the applications flipped a little bit. Let me explain. Today we read about the true story, not a parable, the true story of a man who receives grace and then turns to face, not someone else who owes him, that was last week, but he turns to face. A town full of people that he still owes. Both are forgiven. There are different lessons about forgiveness for us. One, he's forgiven and he turns to someone who he needs to forgive. Today, it's somebody who's forgiven and then turns and has to face the huge mess that he's created. What's he going to do? Is he going to walk away and say, I'm forgiven? Good luck with all that. No. The question of this passage is how will this man this forgiven man address the destruction that he has caused. Two points today. Jesus's radical kindness and Zacchaeus's radical transformation. First, look at what Jesus does. Jesus leads like he always does with his grace. Zacchaeus is described in this passage in Luke 19, if you've got your own apps or a hard copy of the scriptures open. Zacchaeus is described as a chief tax collector. You know, we were in the Gospel of Mark a few months ago and we saw a similar narrative involving Levi, who's also known as Matthew, who wrote the Gospel of Matthew. He was a tax collector. And so we looked at a, a little of the social situation involved when Jesus faces a tax collector. Basically, tax collectors were thieves in plain sight. Tax collectors, here's how it would work. If uh, the Roman Empire or or Herod wanted taxes from a certain district in Judea or Jerusalem, uh, a tax collector would step in and they would offer to prepay the government all the taxes owed for a certain district. So it required a certain amount of wealth. And so taxes are are paid, in theory, to the empire or to the king. But then what the tax collector would be allowed to do is then collect the taxes from the people plus a surcharge. And that surcharge was quite flexible. What would happen most of the time was that tax collectors would prey upon people who they could pillage in order to to turn the biggest profit that they could. So really, it's not too much to say. Tax collectors were thought of as thieves in plain sight. And note that Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector, which means he was really, really good at it. He might have even had something of a pyramid scheme with him on top and other little tax collectors working underneath him. He was the guy in charge of pillaging Jericho for the empire. And he was a Jew. So he was also understood to be something of a traitor, a thief and maybe what's worse, a traitor to his fellow Jews. Luke highlights how he's invisible in this scene. If you're familiar with this story or we're listening along, he's short. So he had to climb a tree to see Jesus, but it seems like that's just kind of symbolic for the other ways he's invisible. It's literal. He really was short. But there's also other ways he was invisible. If anybody's going to meet the Savior, it's not going to be this guy. He better stay gone. He better stay outside of the circle of salvation. And so he kind of does that. He climbs a tree to look at Jesus, look at this gracious teacher who seems to be a lot closer to God than the other rabbis at a distance to see what he can make of Jesus. And Jesus looks up at this man dripping with shame. And he says, out of all the people crowded around him in, Jerusalem, in Jericho that day, I want to go to your house, Zacchaeus. I want to come to your place. I want to share table fellowship with you. And this was, this was a really intimate expression, table fellowship in the first century. It was a sign of unity and communion and friendship, even spiritual family. Of all the people here, I, I, I choose Bernie Madoff. Not all the people who have been destroyed by him. I want to sit with him. I want to sit with... Do you, do you, remember, um, do you remember this guy? What was his name? Um, oh, I have it written down somewhere. I, Martin Shkreli. I had to look up his name. I remembered his reputation. Do you remember who Martin Shkreli was? I see a few nods. Here's who Martin Shkreli was. Martin Shkreli is the guy whose company, whose pharmaceutical company, got the license to sell the drug Daraprim, the exclusive license, to sell one of the main drugs to treat people with HIV and AIDS. And overnight, he raised the price by a factor of 56, from $11 a pill, excuse me, $13 a pill, to $750 per pill. And he immediately became the biggest jerk in the world. And nobody could stand him. Like, everybody was calling down shame and brimstone and fire on this absolute, I don't even want to say the words in church. That's how we thought of him. Think of that guy. Jesus says, I want to sit with you. I I want to be your friend. I want to share table fellowship with you. I want us to be one. I want us to be really close. Not because you deserve it. Not because you've repented yet but just because I am the friend of sinners. That's the scene. I don't know if you're familiar with the gospel, the good news of what it means that Jesus came. He was the son of God. He sought out people who were miserable and weak and impoverished and lame, and he sought out the Martin Shkreli's of the world, all of whom were sin-sick, and wanted to reconcile all of them to himself, and he did by the blood of his cross. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That means anybody can come. That means nobody's too far off. Nobody's too invisible, too weak, too powerful, too shameful, too outside the circle of who's acceptable. We call it the gospel, the news that this is how God relates to people. And for some of us, it's either too good to be true or terribly offensive. But Jesus says in Verse 10, like it or not, I came to seek and save the lost. And I don't know how you think about lost people. In Luke 19, this is lost people. In grace, Christ comes looking to seek sinners and make them his friends. And then, of course, when grace is received, grace transforms. Grace leads the way. Grace initiates Forgiveness, we can say, if not in words, then in action, in welcome, in permission to come near, in delight in the presence of human scum, grace initiates. Then what? Zacchaeus says in verse 8, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor... And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. He makes restitution. This is his response. Now, there's a few things we need to be really clear on when we read Zacchaeus. Giving half his goods to the poor and restoring fourfold, which has to be an incredible amount of work for the chief tax collector in Jericho, which was a center of a lot of trade crossroads. It was Jesus' last stop before entering Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, by the way. So it was right outside Jerusalem. He had defrauded a lot of people. This is not a small sum, and this wasn't going to happen that day. It was going to take some time to bring restitution. The first thing you need to see, though, is that he was not trying to merit anything. He was not trying to earn the presence of Jesus that he had just been welcomed into. God's grace is prior to human response. But as the Apostle Paul famously says in Romans 2, if you haven't memorized this one, you should. God's kindness is intended to lead us to repentance, to a turning, to not staying the same. Repentance, metanoeo, literally means a changing of mind-heart. The word there is nous, which is really like the eyes of the heart. Um, And and it's a a turning um, on a heart and mind level, but also in a way that overflows into your actions. It is never the expectation of the Savior that this kind of forgiveness would lead to zero human response, or a response that would lead to something like, I'm forgiven, what do you want from me? That's actually a straw man. That's what a lot of people say in response to the message of grace. Well, if, you're, if, you're, if you are somebody who's forgiven, why would you ever try to change your life? I mean, if God's good at forgiving and I'm good at sinning, that's fine. That person doesn't exist. That is a straw man. That is a human being that does not exist On the face of the earth. That is someone who has not received forgiveness. The person to whom resurrecting grace comes is broken and remade. And maybe for all we know who those people are, they might not be all the people sitting in this in this room. They are known to God. And the question, not to shake up anybody's God-given assurance about your salvation, which is by God's grace alone, that should never go away is, how can it be, how can it be that I know about this grace, but it's not worked its way out into my life? And to come back in tears and brokenness to the God of grace, who will always receive you. But if the question is, what do you want? What do you want? And what do you want? What do you want? I'm forgiven, right? That is that is not something that's ever going to be heard in the kingdom. And so if it's heard now, the question that naturally has to come is, am I in the kingdom? And I cannot lift that weight from you. It's a divine weight that may well save your soul. Here's the other thing you need to know. It's not a random thing that he says, I'm going to give back fourfold. Actually, the Old Testament very clearly breaks down in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, the second, third, and the fourth book of our Bibles, how exactly you are supposed to bring restitution when you have stolen, or even in some cases, accidentally harmed somebody. Exodus 21, Leviticus 6, Numbers 5. Uh, there's a pastor named Duke Quan who's a, kind of a sister church of ours down in Washington, D.C., who really helpfully breaks down the Old Testament principles of restitution. And they're really interesting, and they're immediately applicable to your life. And I'm gonna give them to you now. These are the four things involved. If you have wronged someone, and you're asking the question, Is it possible that it can be made right? Not everything can be made right. Dominique could not bring full restitution to Conceal after he and other Hutus destroyed her village. It was not full reconciliation. It wasn't making her completely whole. But the question, what can we do? The Old Testament answers, and it shows up right here in the pages of the New in the ministry of Jesus. Four things. At least there might be more, we can talk about it. First, realization. Realization has to be involved. Why is this important? Um, sometimes you're going to go to someone and ask their forgiveness, and they're going to be wanting to say to be gracious. they're really going to want to be gracious and they're going to say, "I forgive you." But they haven't. Why? Because some things are really, really big, and they don't even know yet what it cost them. This is really big. I was meeting with a couple recently, I won't give their name or the situation, but there was a lie in the relationship. And uh, there was asking of forgiveness and forgiveness granted, but it was clear that it took a while to figure out all the ways that the offended party had been affected by the lie. It affected other relationships. It affected ways that they'd been relating over the course of a number of years, And so it really took time to count the ways that damn. It wasn't to take them to trial or to take them out and hang them to make them feel worse every day. It was a process of realizing just what had happened. Realization. We need to understand the cost involved in both forgiveness and restitution. Forgiving does mean that you're absorbing the debt, and not trying to make them pay in full, but as we see in Scripture, if there are ways they can make restitution for the sake of peace, it is important to let them try, not in a way that can be construed construed as earning forgiveness, but in such a way that brings about fuller wholeness. If you steal something, you have to give it back. Return. Realization, then return is the second thing. Full restitution is made to the injured party. This is related. Again, if you steal something, you have to give it back. Can you always give it back, though? No. You cannot always give it back. If it's material, you may be able to do it. But this is where forgiveness and reconciliation requires a lot of wisdom. It is possible that you've stolen from someone something that's very difficult to give back, and you go to them and you offer to bring back something and they decide to set you free. That is their prerogative. It is commanded to set them free at the level of the heart. By the way, that's that's Jesus' exact instruction in Matthew 18. The punchline of the parable of the unforgiven servant from last week is you must forgive your brother from the heart. It does not mean that there is never a scenario in which your brother may try to bring you something to make you whole again materially. You do all you can to make the person whole. You return what you took. This is is really difficult when it's not something material. Let's, Let's just take something like trust. Let's take something like a lie you do need to forgive someone for a lie, a little one or a big one. But what exactly does restitution look like when you've lied to someone or betrayed them? What in the world? The Bible gives us case law. Um, It does not give us exact instructions for every situation. It gives us a few examples from which we have to extract. Well, what do we do in this situation? It requires wisdom. Forgiveness does not mean automatically re-trusting a person who has repeatedly proven themselves to be unsafe. It means I'm not going to crucify you. It means I'm not going to fantasize about ways to get you back. But it doesn't necessarily mean if you've done this again and again and again, that I'm going to throw myself right back into the fire and and invite you to do it again. Here's just one very difficult but very clear and important example. Domestic violence. Domestic violence. You know, I've, I've encouraged, and I would again, if you're the victim of domestic violence, well, let's just ask them a question. Should you forgive or should you call the police? Yes. You should call the police and you should forgive them because you love the other person. You don't want to see them continuing to do this. You love the victim as Christ loves them. You love the offender as Christ loves them. And you don't want that pattern to go on without intervention. Trust needs to be reestablished. So maybe restitution, when it's not material, just involves Asking the question, Lord, how can I approach this person that I've wronged in a way that they can bear? And that involves almost always bringing in other people from the faith community to discern in a way that doesn't perpetuate harm, but actually leads towards restoration. More briefly, so realization. Return. And finally, those are the last two relatives. I won't get into this, but it's very interesting, very, very interesting that in the book of Numbers, chapter 5, if you've wronged someone who's now deceased, you owe it to their relatives. You owe it to their heirs. It's very clear in scripture. And finally, in a way that points most clearly to the gospel, Ram. Realization, restitution. Relatives, ram. Excuse me. Realization, return, relatives, ram. Um, In the law of Moses, this is very interesting and important restitution doesn't restore the relationship with God, restitution restores the relationship with the person. So every time there is also a ram offered as a guilt offering for atonement for sin. It's very interesting. The ram is given to the priest and presented before the Lord on the thief's behalf and then serves as a guilt offering of atonement. Now, in this passage, it's really interesting. Zacchaeus doesn't have to go all the way into Jerusalem with a ram and meet the priest and get the guilt offering slaughtered and receive forgiveness. That way, Jesus is on the scene doing something new. This is how N.T. Wright describes it. He says, What Zacchaeus would normally have obtained through visiting Jerusalem and participating in the sacrificial cult, Jesus just gives to him on the spot. Why? Because Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus has come to offer the final sacrifice. Jesus is the last and ultimate atonement between God and man, and he's right there. He's right there. God... Sets Zacchaeus free on the spot. That's what Jesus came to do, and it's what Jesus will do for you. But it does not, and this is how forgiveness and even our view of salvation gets abused. It's when we see, hey, God's my judge, you have nothing on me. That's wrong. It's wrong. You know, there's there's signs on our windows in our neighborhood. I've mentioned this before, that say, no justice, no peace. You've seen them. Some of your neighbors have them. No justice, no peace. I want you to know that's absolutely true. No justice, no shalom. What else is true? No forgiveness, no peace. See, our thing is we need both. And the gospel is both. And we should create signs that say both. Because the fact is... You cannot make another hole most of the time. Jesus Christ and his people, called by his name and united to him by his blood, are a forgiving people. Without forgiveness, there is no chance of God's shalom. The debt's too deep, collectively and individually. We can't repay And yet, at the same time, the call is always back to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that original order of justice, of peace, of shalom, of wholeness. And you have something that you've taken and you won't give it back? That is an abuse of Christ's forgiveness. Think of it this way. Restitution authenticates repentance. Restitution authenticates receiving forgiveness. My prayer, brothers and sisters, is that the church can be a leading voice in all the ways that this question is being risen in our society right now. You know, you know, we're in a very complex country that talks about our sins generationally. Um conversations about racial reparations, conversations about what we owe to the person sleeping on the street. Is that justice or is that mercy? It's a really good question. What I want, as well as our individual relationships to be repaired, is to go back to scripture and to, with the, cho- with the church as a whole, in this nation and around the world, to revisit the deposit of truth in God's word and say, what does it say and what is it calling to now? What is it calling us to now? I promise you, it is not immediately and perfectly clear. It requires wisdom. But I believe at this intersection, justice and forgiveness we find the cross and we find a way. And so I leave, really God leaves that with us for our prayers and for the communion table and for our conversations as we're driven out by his word, by his grace, into a world that has no peace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.